Hey everyone, and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk Splits. And as you see from the title, this is an epic edition of Turned Out of Punk Splits. Today on the show, returning to the show, I should say, from the Melvins and Altamont and, and a plethora of other projects, the great Dale Crover, and from Bikini Kill and Girlsperm and a bunch of other, like a plethora of other projects, Frumpies, et cetera, et cetera. The great Toby Vale returns to the show. I would say two of the most influential drummers to ever emerge from the Pacific Northwest punk scene. You can debate me on that. I say it to them on the show. But but I, I, I'm coming with facts on this thing. Because obviously Dale and the Melvins and, and their influence and, and Toby and Bikini Kill and her writing and Riot Girl and the influence that Toby's had, we're talking about two people that have, have shaped very different parts of punk, but they're ultimately from the exact same place and grew up together. And so, yeah, when Tristan, my brother and show producer and I were kind of chatting about you know, dream splits we can put together. This was right up at the very top. I'm excited for you to hear it. As I said, I'm just off tour with Fucked Up. Uh, shout out to anyone who I met on the road and talked to me about this podcast. Uh, we are going on tour again. You can check out fuckedup.cc for more dates in the future. So my voice is a little shredded. This thing's a little later than I would have liked to have it to have come out. But, you know, it's the road. It's not very conducive for recording intros and outros to a podcast, but uh, I'm now you're hearing it better late than ever. Right. Uh, Toby is right now on tour with bikini kill. If you're listening to this, when it came out over in, uh, I think New Zealand right now, New Zealand, Australia about to return to these shores. When I say these shores, I mean, North American shores where bikini kill will be going on tour. You can find out much more information about all the upcoming tour dates for bikini kill at bikinikill.com including a show in Toronto that I got tickets for. Oh my gosh, I'm very excited to see this thing. Finally, finally going to get to see Bikini Kill. And the Melvins are going to be kicking off a 40th anniversary tour, one of the most important rock and roll bands ever, and to this day, one of the greatest live experiences you can ever see. You can find out more information over on all the Melvin's social media sites. Melvin's.net has a bunch of tour dates. There also has a brand new Melvin's record, and it's fantastic. Has there ever been a bad Melvin's record? I, I don't think a bad one. Ones that I like less than others, but a bad one? Never. And this one certainly is not. Bad Mood Rising is out now. You can check it out wherever you listen to your music. I think a lot of the vinyl is sold out, but I'm sure there's a, a way to get some of the old records. Uh, there's probably a new pressing or something. It'll have it on the road. And as I said, you can find out more about those Melvin's tour dates online. Toby is at Miss Toby Vale on Instagram. And Dale is at Dr. Crover, Dr. Crover. <laughs> Maybe it's not Doc. Maybe his middle name starts with an R. I should check that out. But anyway, Dr. Crover on Instagram as well. And uh, yeah, check out both these people. If you're not familiar with either of these people's work, there's a lot more punk out there for you to check out because, you know, these are, these are huge. Anyway, I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Uh, I think that's it. But before I let you go, I got to give a huge thank you to our sponsor, the great cream magazine, which is back, not just online in physical form as well. That is cream with two E's for you. 
unfamiliar people with it, but you should be familiar with it because this is the place that punk rock got its first name in print. I think the great Lester Bangs, former editor of Cream Magazine, was the person that coined the use of punk in terms of music, talking about 60s punk garage rock bands. But you can check out yourself, all if I'm lying, or, or you can read all the stuff Lester Bangs wrote, because Cream has also digitized a whole archive of every issue they've ever done. Head over to cream.com to get access to this website, which with this archive to see merch and to also subscribe to the magazine. Cause as I said, it is back in physical form. It's, it's well over a hundred pages of beautiful photographs and incredible writing. Unbelievable. The list of contributors is fantastic for this thing. Every issue is, so far has been well worthy of an addition to your library and they will continue to put out great magazines. And for you, dear listeners of Turned Out a Punk, they are offering you a special 15% off your subscription or joining the fan club, which gives you access to it online and stuff. But we, we like physical formats here at Turned Out a Punk, so you probably want to subscribe to the magazine. Anyway, you get 15% off if you use the promo code, all one word, Turned Out a Punk. It says caps on here, so maybe put it in caps and uh, subscribe and check this out. And thank you to Cream for supporting this podcast. I feel, I don't know, I feel great synergy with, uh, <laughs> synergy is such a terrible thing. I feel like a, a really strong connection with Cream Magazine. And uh, I'm very stoked that they believed enough in this podcast to help me uh, cover the costs of doing this thing. So thank you for that. Check out cream.com with two E's. You should know that. Uh, for more information and subscribe to this thing. It's fantastic. Beautiful magazine. And I just got back from the UK where, you know, magazine culture is very much alive and well and picking up magazines and reading them in the van. It's, it's, it's one of the great joys. Oh my gosh. All right. Sit back, relax and enjoy Toby Vale and Dale Crover on Turned Out of Punk Splits. Dale, Toby, Toby, Dale, welcome back to the show. Hello. Hi, Thanks. thank you for having us. <laughs> well, I was, I, this, this episode is very exciting for my two younger children. My older child, unless I was talking to KSI, I don't think he, he would be that excited right now. But my younger two are very excited because my middle son has just started playing drums and his fans of both of you are playing and he's, so he's learning about drummers. And my youngest child has just out of nowhere become obsessed with the music from the 90s in the Pacific Northwest. And <laughs> it's really weird having a seven-year-old want to ask me questions about different bands. And, you know, I've been trying to force music on my kids, the first two, for so long that I just kind of gave up with the third one. And yet here he is coming to it naturally. So they're going to be very excited about listening to this episode. Don't worry, I'll censor it for them. Where? <laughs> See, that was your problem, is you tried to force it on them. Oh, I passively yeah. forced it. Passively. Okay. You know, like, I play, you know, like you, you do the same thing, I imagine. You just play your kids stuff that you enjoy. You don't try and make it their thing. Sure, sure, but, but I, never, I never expected them to like it. <laughs> I always expected them to like horrible music. Um, but my daughter actually likes some pretty good stuff, so did something right, I guess. I talked to the kids in the Linda Lindas the other day, uh -huh. and... And finding out that they're like, not all of them, but but three of them are like the children of like punk rockers, and we're going to shows. Okay. 
very, very young. And it made me want to talk to them and see, what did you do that I did wrong? Because I don't think my kids are going to want to be in a band. I think I, I think I've scared them straight. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no idea. I mean, there are certain things that she discovered on her own, like, well, like Nirvana. I mean, <laughs> believe it or not, I wasn't playing a lot of Nirvana in the house. Yeah. You know, she knew that there was a connection, but didn't really know and just kind of discovered that on her own. That that's kind of where it started with my uh, youngest child too, and it started with "Smells Like Teen Spirit," and now it's "Bleach." Um, and it was just so weird because, like, I always wonder, like, you know, like uh, Nirvana, but like bands like the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or Led Zeppelin, like, are are these bands ostensibly better than their peers, or have we just been conditioned to think that this is some sort of like paradigm shift in music that happened and could have only happened? given these sorts of people. So it's interesting to see young kids without any of the cultural baggage still gravitating towards certain things. Like the kids started loving the Beatles and I'm not, I love, I like the Beatles, but I'm not like a Beatles obsessive, but yet they still naturally kind of gravitated towards that. And it's like, Oh, I guess there is yeah. something to these bands. Yeah. Well, there's I think definitely so. something to the drummers. I like, think about it, John Bonham, Ringo, Charlie Watts, like, I don't think those are normal drummers. I don't think those three people are, I think that they have something special. I mean, you could say it about it, you know, any number of musicians, but just thinking from a drumming point of view, that music is pretty uh, magical, I think. Yeah, well, it's also, for sure. And it's crazy because like, I think of you two as being two of the most influential drummers in punk rock, completely different styles, like completely different. And I never place you guys in the same space temporally, obviously being not from there. So to me, it's almost like different universes. And it wasn't until I think I saw the Melvins cover Rebel Girl in uh, Nashville. And we were talking after the show and you're like, oh, yeah, like, you know, we knew Toby. We knew all of them from like young kids and like we played with them like we knew them. And it was just uh, very eye opening for me because it's it brings home the fact that the Pacific Northwest in particular sort of Seattle and, and Aberdeen and Olympia and, and right down to Portland, it is like a really small scene ultimately, or like a very tight knit scene. It seems like. Small, but it was really small. Yeah. In the eighties, it was small. There was, yeah, nothing. Very small. <laughs> it was like, it's kind of funny. Like when you think about how many people from that tiny olympia early olympia music scene like went on to do other things like even just like people that were kind of on the fringe of it like i realized that the singer from skies cries mary or what is that being called sky cries mary she was like yeah. one of the girls that went to the tropicana and she i know i knew her because i copied her chemistry homework and <laughs> like i didn't know she was a musician and she changed her name so then like years later I realized, oh wait, she was like one of those kids too. And then also like the guy, um, Rob Roth from Truly, he wasn't really a part of the Tropicana scene, but he like went to my high school and like, he was this mod kid that like, he wore a trench coat and like, he was into the jam and stuff. And um, I saw him actually, like when I went to go see Quadrophenia, I saw went to go see the Who play Quadrophenia in like 1996, cause I never, you know, saw it before. 
and we got in free somehow. And like the guy sitting in front of me, I was like, that's Rob Roth from ninth grade or whatever. And like, I think I was there with like William from the Food Fighters or something. He's like, that's the guy from Truly. And I was like, that's just like <laughs> wow. this guy that like used to let me borrow melody makers or whatever, like in high school, because he had a subscription or I don't know, NME or something like that. It was like really weird, like a lot. And because that's just weird. That's strange that all that yeah. stuff came out of one tiny little universe. Right. Well, even even the fact that there was more than one band from Aberdeen, which is even more isolated. Olympia was like the big city compared to Aberdeen. <laughs> you know, yeah. There was nothing there. It's, well, it's fascinating when you look at why certain, why punk, hardcore DIY culture took to certain places harder than it took to other places. Like population wise, like I don't know American geography that well. So I assume Chicago size wise is, is kind of close to Seattle, yet. I think it's bigger, it, it, bigger, but yet there's more music that seems to come out of Seattle because like, there's like, you know, the early first wave punk scene. There's also that weird new wave scene with bands like Strider and D best and all that stuff. There's later on, there's, there's all sorts of like doomy stuff. There's, there's just like, just such a plethora of styles coming out of it. And, you know, as you're saying, it's, it's not bigger than Chicago yet. There's, it seems like a lot more coming out of it. I mean, it didn't really seem like that at the time. It seemed like nothing was happening. <laughs> I, I mean, looking Kinda. back on it, something was happening, but it didn't, to me, it just seemed like, I don't know, there's like the U-Men, mm -hmm. Seattle, what else? I don't know. Well, that's well, kind of why we wanted to move to California, too. We're just like, oh, I don't know. I mean, it was, it was actually, at the time, really hard to even get gigs in Seattle. <laughs> you know, there, there was very few places to play. And then once we moved away and came back, there was a lot more places to play. And it was, I don't know, it was better. <laughs> I think, I, I think it's like first, I first heard it in that movie hype, but I think it's become something that's almost like a cliche at this point that the reason stuff developed in Seattle is because no one ever came there. But, you know, through talking to people like bands came to Seattle, like, you know, like DOA stuff from Vancouver, there was, a, it seems like there was a lot of cross pollination. Certainly bands from California came up there, but was it a case of bands just like not coming through? Did you feel like you guys were isolated? Well, it was I mean, far for some. Sorry, go ahead, Tubby. No, you go ahead. I think it was far for a lot of bands. I mean, there was, you know, between like San Francisco, even going to Portland, that's a long drive. There was mm. nothing in between, really not, not any place to play, Not at least not that long ago. So it was a track for bands to come up there, but I think a lot of there a lot of bands that make it there, but then there's bands like Flipper who always canceled and <laughs> never made it up there. You know, uh, there's a lot I'm, of bands like that. Imagine when you leave San Francisco as Flipper, you're like, yeah, this, this would be an easy drive. And then you hit weed and there's no drugs left. You're like, let's just go back. Right. Yeah. Um, or, I know like minor threat never played. Right. Up here. Mm. Um, and like, no, someone like, recently was like oh like we're like there are a lot of dc hardcore bands playing in the northwest and that how the dc olympia thing happened i was like no dc hardcore bands didn't tour like i mean minor threat was like the exception and they didn't even make it here you know right scream so, yeah Screenplay. scream good yeah that's that's true you're right but not very many you know no i guess it's like the later era of discord stuff where the bands start getting out there and that's when that kind of i guess thing yeah. kind of between the two cities happens right yeah, Plus I mean, this is hard to tour back then. <laughs> you know, when we, I mean, I don't know, when we first went on tour, we only had a seven inch out and, and it wasn't distributed well. So 
nobody knew who we were and just going on tour it was just it was hard to do hard to make any money doing it by the time the cz record had come out was was it there already the intention that you were like we have to get out of seattle or is that kind of after touring a little bit mm, i mean we oh you mean to move away or yeah to move or away just, just um, finding somewhere else to live somewhere else to be based as a band yeah i don't know i mean it, that just kind of happened but i mean we probably would have moved to Seattle, or at least uh, we would have easily have moved out of Aberdeen. <laughs> you know, um, just the opportunity for us, you know, came about that we could move to to San Francisco, and we liked it there, and it was someplace different. And like I was saying, Seattle. I mean, at the time there was a few places, but there wasn't that many. You know, there was the Vogue happening, and maybe the Central, and that was kind of it. You know, when, by the time we left, there was not really anything going on in Olympia. Um, Tacoma had the Community World Theater, but it was kind of towards the end, too, I think. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, because so, it's like Gesco was closed. Gesco closed and Recomuse hadn't opened yet. So we didn't have anything right. at all when you guys left. Right. Well, actually, I wanted to ask you about that, Toby, because last time you talked about how important the Melvins were as like a a band for you as a young person, what did it feel like when they do leave? Like, did it feel like, Oh yeah, we've ta- we probably talked about this before. I was just like, <laughs> yeah. I remember this, like, I was just like in tears. Like I, like, uh. <laughs> I don't know how to like compare, like what I can compare it to. Like, like, it's just like something I totally took for granted that would always be there. And then it, I just was like, it just felt like, like almost like when we had the earthquake and I realized that like you can't ever count on anything, like nothing is permanent, you know, like, like a building could just be gone or all of downtown Olympia could just be gone or, you know, like nine 11 or something like that. I know this sounds ridiculous, but it's like one of those moments personally where I was like, Oh yeah. Like change is just like the only constant, like that's kind of what made me realize like you can't really base your life or, you know, your sense of like, who you are in relation to anything really it has to come from yourself it feels like the melvins though had like a a disproportionately important roles in lives of people that were around them early on like like i guess like black flag does like there's almost like not as sinister i guess ultimately as the black flag cult but there almost seems like there's a cult of the melvins almost immediately with local kids like yourself toby like (laughs) like going like you know finding something in this band Yeah, I mean, there was like a small group of kids who were really into the Melvins and it, you know, as the Melvins got better, which they got really, really good, you know, probably because you guys practice so much. It was just, it just, you know, I mean, I'm guessing like you don't get that (laughs) without practice. Yeah, like you just got really good. You were like way better than all the other bands. And then, you know, it just seemed really exciting. Like that, yeah, nothing was happening. Like after the Tropic yeah. nothing was happening. So they'd be like, oh, the Melvins are playing Tacoma in this weird warehouse, like industrial noise or something. And they'd be like, okay, well, everyone's going to drive there. And then it's like, oh, the Melvins are playing Guerrilla Gardens. Okay, everyone's going to drive there. Okay, like Melvins are playing Community World Theater, you know, or Melvins are playing Crescent Ballroom. It would just be like something to do because there really was nothing going on here. And then like anytime like we would get a venue, like all the Melvins shows would be like really, really fun. We're, yeah. we're like the you men like a 21 and over type band more than like the melvin's like much more like an all ages kind of band well the seattle teen dance hall ordinance or whatever like passed in like 1985 or something so then kids like under 21 couldn't get into shows anymore so um 
you know, unless they were like really big shows, like in theaters, I think they could get around it. Like, you know, like the more theater would have like those big, huge grunge shows that were all ages in the early 90s. And they got around it that way. I, I think like if you could afford the insurance, you could get around it, but nobody really could. So um, that's when like a lot of kids started going to Tacoma to see shows or like Olympia when there was like a place, but it wasn't, you know, there really wasn't that much solid here. E or, borrowing their, or borrowing their older friends' ID so they could get into shows at the Central. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I looked like, I mean, you'll remember, I looked like I was 12 even when I was like 20. So there was no way that was going to ever work. Yeah. <laughs> It, it's it's very interesting how it's almost like you know once again completely different bands but it's it's similar to like the bad brains in dc it feels like they leave and that's kind of the start of everything kind of happening for the next generation of kids in dc hardcore and it's almost like the melvins kind of have a similar effect you know once again looking at this distance from it oh, I, I mean i, I <laughs> I like after you guys yeah. left, it's like when I got or after the Tropicana clothes is one thing. And then after the Melvin's left, it's like that, you know, there's nothing to do. So except for just like focus on your own band. Like, sure. you know, like, yeah. So I, that makes sense to me. But also, you know, Bikini Kill, we had to leave too. Like we went, we had to go to DC because we were trying to make it as an actual band that doesn't have to get jobs, you know? Mm. So yeah. like, there's That's no way hard. you can do that here. Like even now, like you just have to, I remember like after I went on my first couple of national tours, I was like, man, if you lived in Ohio, you could, <laughs> you could be based here and you could play anywhere. Like because there's so many colleges and, you know, you used to be able to make a lot of money playing colleges and there's so many colleges just in Ohio. You could maybe tour Ohio forever, but also like you could get to the East coast, you could get to Chicago, you could get to the South, you, you know, you could get to Minneapolis. Like it just seemed like really clear that like Olympia was like probably the worst place to be in a band. If you were trying to like do anything serious with it in terms of just like anyone paying attention or like being able to like, you know, play shows when you're not on tour or whatever, or like you could do those like little mini tours, which is what we did when we lived in DC. We did a bunch of them. Yeah. Shorter drives too. I'm sure. You for know, sure. A yeah. lot, more, lot more places to play for sure. But yeah. you guys didn't move to Seattle like everybody else. No, we were at anti-Seattle <laughs> at the time. And, you know, I don't know if that was just like an antagonistic thing. I, I mean, what, what I was was kid, I loved, yeah, when I was a little kid, I loved Seattle, but I, yeah. in the 90s, I hated it. So I don't know. I think it's a beautiful <laughs> city, but it's full of rich people now. No one can afford to live there. Right. <laughs> oh, it's kind of every major city now. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really like, you know, I, I've been doing interviews for the new record we did, and I'm just talking to people, and I'm like, yeah, there's no spaces. Like, I don't know how a band would start in Toronto now. Like, where, like, let, forget about trying to find somewhere to live, but like, where would you practice? Where'd you store oh, right, your gear? Yeah. Uh, the big practice space near my house got that we all practiced at, like every band in Toronto practiced their Mets and everyone. Um, it just got bought by a church, which is the irony, given how many times we had to help falling apart churches by doing shows in the basement or, you know, using church places as show spaces. And now here they are taking away our practice spaces. This vengeful God people talk about. Yeah. Fortunately, I've been able to practice in my garage. So it's been a while, but I got a new place and, and um, I got a drum set set up out there and some amps and some guitars. I'm not cranking loud, but it's pretty fun. 
We got a little electronic drum set in the basement now because my son has it. And I, I complained about the volume the other day and realized, oh, my God, <laughs> <laughs> what have I done to myself? Wow. Uh, but, Toby, you said you thought you were at Dale's first show. Or, Dale, you said Toby was at the first show or something. Toby, you mentioned it last time, right? The first. Oh, yeah. It came up when we were talking about um, the Tropicana. And then, like, I remembered, like, Dale, when, like, you guys – I don't know. You guys had a podcast. I don't know if that ever aired. And we're on it. And then, like, you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we're talking about, because um, I was talking about how, like, I was, I never was into metal and, like, growing up or whatever. Like, I was got into punk through, like, being more into new wave music. And then, right. uh, so I was kind of like, didn't really get, like, some of the, or like kind of metal influenced punk at first. And then I was just like, I got, I saw like all your early shows, but I didn't think I was really into it until like uh, you guys opened for DOA. And then you guys, that, went, was, that was Dale's first show. That was, was like, my yeah. first show. Yeah. I think that was, it was the, the drummer. See, it was the drummer that changed your mind. <laughs> it, it's always the drummer. As Toby said, it comes down to these right, really amazing right. drummers. I don't know. Yeah. And I, I don't remember anything particular about that show. I do remember like, you know, like when you first like get into weird music when you're a kid and you like you really want to like it. So you just keep listening to it over and over and over again. And you're like, yeah. it doesn't sound like music. You know what I mean? You're like, what is that? Like, what is it that I'm supposed to be like hearing? Or, you know, it's like you're just listening to the notes and you can't even get it in your head yet. Like, that's kind of how it was for me at first. But then wow. I got it. Yeah. You joined. Yeah. I, I was thinking about this a, a couple months ago. Is Are the Melvins the first post-hardcore band? Like the band that's first fed up with it and already like, oh, let's figure out something else. And I guess Black Flag's already kind of doing it too, but you Probably. guys are really early before Dinosaur Jr. Mm, I don't know. Like that term post-hardcore now has that meaning that means like, yeah, like the way you're using it. But like, I remember the way people used to use it in the 90s was like those bands with big shorts that were kind of like doing this new kind of hardcore. You yeah. Know, the, like the moshy kind of. <laughs> Like they have a like extra large shirt and like giant shorts and they would say like fuck racism on their shirt and then like they'd have a singer that would do like rage against the machine kind of stuff. That's what people used to say post hardcore was just that kind of hardcore, I guess, like sort of metal influenced hardcore. Like I don't know, right, like, right. like maybe like integrity or something, you know. But um now they mean the other meaning, like the my war black flag kind of thing could be one example or like, yeah, like alternative rock, I guess. I remember reading in a Maxim Rock and Roll column, someone saying that Black Flag was the first emo band and laying out a very a well thought out article <laughs> <laughs> column about how Black Flag was the first emo band. Once again, this is using the 90s definition of emo. Uh, so that, that, pretty hot topic. Would, yeah, would yeah. that make Henry the first uh, emo singer then? Would it be, it'd be Henry, right? I think it would be, yeah. Like, and I think I think he lives up to that, right? Wow. <laughs> like, in terms of the the kind of like archetype of that thing, you know. But it's it's interesting how that's funny. Well, I was thinking about this with power violence, and and it's these terms that were like thrown around in zines and just referred used to refer to like particular bands operating in a particular time in a particular space that eventually become just genres to people mm -hmm. and it's so you know it's just so interesting to kind of watch these sort of evolutions obviously riot girl is a huge one for that to happen like people talk about bands like riot girl bands and it's like none of the bands that were associated with it had a particular sound so like what is the 
the sale. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it was almost like like with Straight Edge or something where it's like we didn't call ourselves a Riot Girl band. Riot Girl was like something that happened at at the same time as us with some of us being involved, but that it wasn't a style of music. But I think there were some bands that maybe did call themselves that, like maybe Bratmobile and Heavens to Betsy. Mm-hmm. I'm not totally sure though. But you know, then like you'd play with a band in like Omaha, Nebraska, and be like, they would call themselves Riot Girl. But then I don't know, kind of sound like a little bit like Beat Happening influence, maybe. They didn't usually sound like Bikini Kill. It's interesting hmm. how quickly this stuff spread too. You know, like oh, sorry, not and I'll just go back to what you're saying. I guess no, before. it's okay. But I think what you're saying is like very true. Like Bikini Kill is, and not to say that having a Betsy and you know like isn't a punk band because they're obviously a punk band but like bikini kills like a hardcore band like it's like got this like rawness and edge to it that always screamed like hardcore to me i mean yes and no (laughs) i've been like going through all of my diaries because i'm trying to make a timeline to make some kind of like writing like a book or something and like and also because i'm working on this olympia music history archiving project with the city and so I've been trying to do a timeline and I'm like, God, all this stuff I say in here is so psycho. But like, <laughs> yeah, there's this one entry where it's like, I don't hate hardcore anymore or something like that. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, or I don't hate hardcore or there's something else. It's really funny. And I was like, yeah, when Bikini Go first started, I was like, I hated hardcore. Like I was like, I'd swung back totally against it. And then, yeah, by like the mid 90s, I was into it again. It's kind of weird. What kind of bands were you listening to back then? In the mid nineties, yeah. Well, what what bands were influencing you guys? Oh, um, I mean, well, I guess maybe you could say hardcore bands, like because then I listened to Kathy's interview that she did for that project, and she's like, Toby came over to my house, and she's just like, I knew like an E chord and an A chord on guitar, and Toby came over to my house with like the Faith Boyd record and Minor Threat, <laughs> and I was like, this is like Rachmaninoff, like there's no way I can play this. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I brought her like the first Ramones album and she picked up, she like borrowed my bass and then she was able to like figure that out. Cause she's a, you know, she's a, uh, she's very musical. She'd play piano and stuff, but she didn't know how to play right. guitar or bass. But so I'm like, oh, I guess those were like DC hardcore was definitely, we were listening to it, but I don't remember it that way, but she does. Yeah. Um, I think we were listening to like, um, like, well, I don't know. This is just going to sound like I'm not making any sense because we were definitely listening to like the dicks and the germs, like me and Billy. Um, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I hear the germs in it. I definitely hear that kind of like the, the space you kind of give the words at times and kind of like the, I don't know, I hear that germs influence. And then um, like all four of us, like, like probably the main band that we were into is Babes in Toyland because oh, wow, they, cool. they toured a lot in 1989. Yeah. And like the Go team played with them in Duluth, um, Minnesota. And then I think they played in Olympia like maybe three times that year. And they were just phenomenal when they had Michelle playing bass. And yeah, um, it was, they were playing these tiny shows with shitty PAs and, they just were like monsters and um billy was really influenced by cat's guitar playing actually like oh cool yeah like he he just loves her and then um i think yeah we were all really into that we met them probably around that time about probably about 89 um 
we played with them on Easter Sunday at uh, Humboldt in Humboldt at the college there to probably nobody. And then uh, we befriended them right away. We had the same booking agent and there's some connections there. And, and um, yeah, I remember that we rode with them back from Humboldt to our house, which was like about six hours. And they stayed at our house for a while and we became friends, still friends with Lori. See her all the time. We played with them, I guess, a couple of years ago when they did that reunion thing in Primavera yeah. and they were fucking awesome. Like, yeah, they were, uh, yeah, it was super heavy still. Like I'd seen them years ago and then to see them this, you know, like, it's like, I wonder what it's going to be like. And it was, it was amazing. Um, I don't, I don't think, I, I mean, I don't even know if it's like a past tense thing. I don't think that there had ever been like a band full of women playing music at that level playing rock and roll that fiercely and that like um just like they had that same melvin's thing where it's just like you feel like they're channeling something like they're like a almost like a greg sage like i don't know like something that you is very rare that you see in a great band where it's like they're just like tapping into something they're like yeah transmitting energy like through music and this on this level that not everyone can do like black flag did can do that but like I'd never seen women do that before. And it's, it's super rare in a band, you know? Well, I wanted to ask you, what about, uh, ASF? Like, uh, sorry, I think it's like anti, uh, faction, the pre-tribe yeah. eight band. Yeah. Did they ever come through or was there any, like, I know that I guess it's pretty far. They were Colorado, I think. Right. Um, Boulder. I think they're Boulder. Uh, Boulder. No, they're, yeah, they were in the eighties. So, um, I don't think they toured, but we had their demo tape at Chaos, or maybe it was a seven inch or something. And I have their album on cassette. I still have it. <laughs> they were like a big influence on my first band, Doris, because I think that they were like, we're an all girl skate band. And I, and I was like, we are too. But it was like, I don't even know what that means. Like, it's not even really a style of music. Um, <laughs> but uh, later, yeah, I met Leslie, who was in that band. And actually, Donna Dresch. Her partner was the first drummer for that band, and oh, they met. Awesome. Like, they met completely in a way that had nothing to do with music, <laughs> and so that was kind of funny. Like her current partner, and then, um, uh, oh yeah, okay. So Leslie was going out with this person, um, Stacy Quegis, and um, in the early '90s, and Stacy Quegis was our roadie for a while. So we felt like really connected to that scene in this weird way. <laughs> I get, and you're both on a comp together too, right? I think. Um, tribe eight. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's the dike in the pit. Yeah. yeah like that weird yeah. seven inch comp. <laughs> yeah. There's a, they're, they're like a band tribe eight too. Like I went back and listened to tribe eight recently and I'm like, Oh my God, this band was like a band that, you know, I remember listening to back then, but I guess it was over my head and <laughs> you know, it's, it, Go on, sorry. They were doing crazy stuff on stage. Yeah, yeah. I don't think they. I don't think they played Toronto, but I must have seen a video, maybe at Who's Emma or like one of the anarchist record store type thing. I remember the video just blowing my mind as like a fifteen year old kid. Like, holy shit, this band looks insane on stage. Yeah, I think Frightway was a big influence on Bikini Kill for sure. Frightway mm -hmm. and Babes and Yeah, they're a band that I only started appreciating through doing this podcast. And I think, I think Dale, you brought them up the first time the Melvins were on the show, and then Margaret Cho brought them up, and then Toby, you brought them up. They're like, they're a hugely influential band that no one talks about. Like, they never get yeah, 
Frederick, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's For sure. also the the uh, Paul Leary from the Butt Old Surfers brought him up too when he was on the show. So they definitely are a band that seems like they impacted everyone that was kind of like making moves and making waves at that point. Sure, and the Red Cross guys were really into him as well. Mm-hmm. Um, produced one of their records, and then Rebecca is actually uh, from uh, uh, Montreal. Oh, the Canadian connection too. There you go. <laughs> <That's> yeah. Pretty... <laughs> like, were there any? Were like, where were the bands that came over? I know the Tree People would come over and play, but were there like local scenes? I guess you guys are already gone by this point, Dale. But Toby, were there like local scenes nearby that there were were kind of part of things or like other than Portland and stuff? And I guess Eugene. Yeah, there was like Ellensburg didn't really have a scene, but the Screaming Cheese would play. And then the people who they were friends with started having bands like um, and they would play over here. Like, I can't think of what the bands were called. Solomon Grundy. Solomon Grundy. Yeah, that was like Van Connor's band. Right. But there, yeah. oh, and there was another band called Corn Dump. <laughs> 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 they were kind of like teenagers. I think um, they're a little the Connor's little brother, Pat, was in that band. They played here. The first time I saw them, they were called Bliarg, which I don't know why. And they had they threw pencils out in the audience that said Bliarg. Well, and, and well, I, I think you're on this, Dale. Do you know the Bliarg comps that Slapham put out in the '90s? That oh, yeah. like the seven inches with like a hundred bands on them. Right. I don't know. You don't know these? Oh, I think I've got it right here. I could probably reach in over <laughs> and grab it. I won't. I won't make you guys sit there and wait while I go through the records. But yeah, there's like a bunch of seven inches that Slapham Records put out. There's a Bliarg comp son of blarg and then something else and i always wondered where that word came from too but i guess it's like it was in the zeitgeist corn i don't know um yeah formerly blarg and um the anacortis had some bands brett lunsford from beat happening was from there so um some of those bands will play like the pounding surfs that was in the kate scene and then the there was like a eugene bands that would play in olympia like some velvet sidewalk and um snake pit oh yeah and then tacoma there was uh uh um uh, noxious fumes and uh um and uh uh what's their names um girl trouble girl trouble thank you yeah girl trouble noxious fumes and there was a bunch of other bands like he sluts and oh yeah vampire circus and, I just um, saw the uh, I just saw the uh, guitar player from Heat Slots not that long ago. He came to one of our shows in uh, Sacramento. Ted, remember oh, Ted? I don't remember. I don't remember. I, I remember the singer. <laughs> That's uh, him. The, no, the singer from wait. From I don't Heath know. Slots. Maybe I'm having mixed up. The guy from Heat Slots. Yeah. Maybe I'm remembering the bass player. Yeah, that, that was the black guy, green leather jacket. I can't think of his name. Um, Scott Burroughs, yeah. Yes. Yeah, right, yeah, right, yeah. Right. There, there was like a connection with Girl Trouble and um, Shadowy Men, right? Like I know Don Pyle's done some stuff with Girl Trouble over the years, and I don't think they ever played here, so it must have been when Shadowy Men were kind of coming out um, doing shows out west. Um, they, I know that Bond has talked about playing with Shadowy Men, but I don't know when where they met. It, I mean, Shadowy Men for a Shadowy Planet played Olympia a few times. They played IPU, I think, and they played Rekka Muse at this terrible show that I put on that was kind of a disaster, but um, it ended up being fine. Yeah, and those are the shows that you always remember, right? Like, I find now 
all the good shows kind of blend in, but it's the shows where you're like, oh, that was a really bad show that you always go back to. And it's the funny stories. They're hard to get through, but they become great memories eventually. Yeah. Well, do, you ever have, do you guys ever have this where you think you played the worst show ever and then people come up and go, that was the best show I've ever seen you guys do. Well, what would a bad Melvin show look like? Like, cause I, I find, oh, I don't know. Just, I mean, whatever just like you know screwing up you know all the time or just like not having having an off show or whatever i just couldn't imagine like you guys are just so locked in you know and it's 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 amazing to watch but i just can't like fucked up it just feels like we're we're holding it together with duct tape and and broken promises and it's going to fall apart and it has fallen apart many times on stage where you know all of a sudden i stop believing i can fly and i crash down to earth and i bring the whole band down with me but you know, I just I just can't imagine that happening with you guys. Yeah, it's oh, you know. I, I always try to be like, okay, like that show seemed really bad to me, but I have no idea how it came across to someone in the audience, and vice versa. You know, like I think the only like most of the shows I could think of that were Melvin's shows that were like not as good as the other ones were just like the sound was bad. You know, like sure. the, guitar, the guitar sounded like it was in the wrong tone through the PA or something, or you know, like. Yeah, that kind of stuff the happens. Or, the drums for no reason or something like that. Right. Well, yeah. yeah, at the same time, we've played shows where it's like, oh, well, that felt really good. And then people are just kind of like, eh, okay. <laughs> Exactly, yeah. So you never know. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That's just being a band in Toronto. You know, you get the Toronto shrug. You know, it's like yeah. the, it's a music industry town. So the, everyone's competition. Right. Which I guess wasn't a factor as much for yourselves until later on, right? Like there must have been like a, like was there competition between bands or was like everyone kind of pulling in the same direction? Like, which is something I find definitely when you talk to people from like North Carolina or from Atlanta or from one of uh, like, or Athens, I should say, like a scene where there wasn't necessarily commercial pressure. So bands seem to kind of operate better or coexist better. Oh well, yeah. In the eighties, people totally supported each other way more than in the nineties, I think. Right, but there was there was competitions because everybody always wanted to play the cool shows. Oh yeah, you know? like everyone was mad that the happening got to open for Black Flag because everyone thought that their own band should be able. Oh to right, play. yeah, I do remember right. that. People would get mad a lot at, at Calvin because they'd be like, "Why is Be Happening playing that show?" And I'm just like, "He probably put the show on." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Dale, what what drove you to what drove you guys to want to move? Uh, to LA were there like bands that you felt because I know when you were on before you talked about I guess it's the same DOA show that Toby brought up where there was that kind of beef with DOA and I think you uh, both you and Buzz said you guys didn't really fit in with a lot of the bands that were coming through and going like what was it about Los Angeles that you guys thought was going to have something or San Francisco yeah yeah we first moved to San Francisco and like I said it was just kind of like an opportunity that that uh, presented itself um, we, uh, had signed with a label from there 
and we recorded our first record there and um, met uh, this band, Clown Alley, who were also in, so, sort of involved in the label. And um, their bass player became our future ex-bass player <laughs> um, and Buzz's future ex-girlfriend. And um, I don't know. It was just, like I said, you know, I mean, it was, um, there wasn't much going on in Seattle. And it was just kind of like um, going someplace and having a fresh start, which was pretty much what happened. I mean, we pretty, you know, we, we started over. Yeah. You know, someplace new where, where nobody knew who we were, um, you know, and we did have, you know, even though our following was, was, wasn't huge, it, it, we did leave, we did leave that behind to go do something new. Other than that, you know, other than it was someplace that we liked, you know, with the uh, Seattle was, uh, 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 you know, I guess we kind of felt like we, we, there just wasn't much going on. Yeah. I guess you're, as you're saying, it's kind of like alchemy records being there, but there's also like the farm. There's like a lot of places that are popping up venues and it does feel like the opposite that's happening in Seattle where there's nowhere to play. There must've been tons of stuff going on like every night. You know, I remember going to San Francisco the first time in the nineties and just being like, Oh my God, this is like the punk rock capital of the world. It was good. I mean, it was hard for us to get shows at first, but you know, eventually we did. And, um, yeah, we left right when everything was, uh, exploding, <laughs> but then we'd go back up there and play shows and it, it, it seemed like nobody really knew that we left. There's still people <laughs> think we live there still. So, you know, and it was better. I mean, we could go back and I mean, you know, when we left, we were making like, you know, a hundred, a hundred dollars, 150 bucks. You know, it wasn't there. It didn't feel like we were leaving much, you know, <laughs> did, did you guys get assumed in or, or play at all with the speed metal stuff and the thrash stuff that's kind of popping up around that same time in, uh, in San Francisco in the Bay area. Um, show wise. No, but I mean, I remember we played shows in Tacoma that would be like, us and DRI or, mm. or I know I told you about shows with uh, poison idea. Some yes. of those shows were just insane. <laughs> Toby, did you ever see a poison idea play at the Crescent ballroom? I did. And I have no memory of it, <laughs> which is like completely baffling to me. Well, how about you must remember like Jerry, I used to blow those big fireballs and they would, I have no memory. Just... I have no memory of ever seeing poison idea. And I thought that they only played over 21 shows. And I was like looking through my flyers, which are like mostly shows I went to and they're all over like a ton of shows. And then I was just like, maybe I just didn't care because I thought they were just like drunk, weird adults, you know? Yeah. Well, and I were, was just like, oh, the weird really drunk good. adults are playing. I'm not going to watch this band. Well, <laughs> like, they, were, they were really good. Like, they were like, so, I, mean, I, know, I know they're good, but I don't remember ever seeing them. Yeah. Well, and, well, what and about, like, that's, there was that one summer, like, about, like in 87, where there was a ton of really good shows at the Crescent Ballroom. I don't know if you ever. Yeah. Like, yeah. See? Like, the Beyond Possession one and the oh, Melvin. Yeah. Um, I don't know. There was like a couple different ones. I keep, I always get the two confused. One is like false Liberty, the accused Melvin's. I don't know which one is which, but poison idea. We're definitely on one of them. Yeah. The, uh, the most mind blowing thing that Toby told me last time, Dale, is that Kathleen Hannah roadie or went on tour, I should say with poison idea. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, after I brought that up with her again, she goes, well, not really. I didn't really go on tour with them. I like went on tour with them. If it's a I went on tour with Fits of Depression and, and around the Northwest and I took pictures of them. But like to us, that was like a tour. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, sure. Like it was for Fits of Depression. It was a tour. 
I, right. I tell people all the time that I tour with the Melvins, even though the reality is I was on a giant festival tour <laughs> in Australia. But as far as I'm concerned, it was a Melvins tour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> oh, wait. Dale, I did want to ask you a question, though. So, like, I was saying, like, I don't remember any. I didn't know anything about metal. So, like, I don't, I don't remember any of that. But, like, okay. So, like, metal shirts are from Aberdeen, right? They are sort of. Did, well, they, you they guys, were... did you guys know about them at the time? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. The uh, um, one of the guys that was in the band lived um, a block away from me, and um, when I was first getting into music, like I was really into Kiss, and um, I knew who he was. And one day I saw him; and he had long hair, and I started talking to him. He's like, "Oh, hey, I have a, I have a Les Paul and a Marshall House stack," and so I went over to his house, and he's the guy that like. He's the guy that pretty much convinced me to start playing drums. Oh, cool. So. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering, I always wonder if there's a connection there. Like somebody uh, texted me a photo of like Metal Church playing in Olympia at some venue I don't remember and was asking me about it. I was like, I have no knowledge of this band. I'll, I'll have to talk to someone who might know. Like, so they must have played Olympia. They played Olympia. I don't Probably. know. Probably. Yeah. I mean, well, they're, originally they're from San Francisco and like, the the only original guy is Kurt Vanderhoof, who was from Aberdeen. Okay. He also, um, if you know who he is, he uh, he he was Blabo and the Lewd. Oh, oh okay. so, I didn't realize yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, probably that that's probably the first punk band I ever heard was probably the Lewd. Now to think about it, because he was from there. I, I mean, think he moved to San Francisco with the Lewd. And then joined like formed Metal Church, and then that version of the band broke up. He moved back to Aberdeen and formed reformed the band with a bunch of guys from there, including the, the other, guy that convinced me to play drums. The other thing I wanted to know was like, what about the time that the Ramones played in Aberdeen? Because Calvin told me he went to that show. He did. Wow. Yeah, you know, I think um, I keep. I've been looking for his book. I should just order it online. But uh, I, I think uh, I think the, have you read that Monty Melnick book? No. About the remote. Oh, that's supposed yeah, to be really I haven't good. read it. Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. Oh, there is unbelievable stories in that. Like Ed Stasium tells a story about Elton John showing up at the live recording of the record with oh, wow. uh, a full SS BDSM outfit on. And oh, boy. Pull, pulling out like a weird Iron Eagle uh, like necklace and it being full of cocaine and the two of them just doing cocaine all night backstage. Wow. <laughs> I I think you know there might even be audio of that gig uh, that the, the Ramones playing in Aberdeen, but I think that he talks about it. I think Monty Melnick talks about it in his book. Um, but anyway, the other thing I know about it is that it was supposed to be at um, this theater over in Hoquiam called the uh, um, the Seventh Street Theater, maybe, and only two people bought tickets for the show, and one of the guys was was Kurt Vanderhoof, Blabo from the Lewd and Metal Church, and some other guy, some friend of his. They were underage and couldn't go. It got moved to this place called The Rocker. So no, oh, that's, that's awesome. Played, I mean, when was it? It must have been like 77, 78, probably something like that. You know, I think th those guys played everywhere. I wonder if Calvin was even 21. Like, I don't know. I'll have to ask him about it next time I see him. Because I just remember him telling me about that in the 80s. Right, right. Yeah. Did you ever see that band NME at all? Like the like letter N-M-E? They were like I a metal. Think, 
I think that I saw them at Bumper Shoot, which is maybe not true, but I think that maybe it is true. I don't know. Yeah, my dad had a single, and I think that we saw them at Bumper Shoot, but I'm not sure. That's like this festival in Seattle that used to be really cheap. I think they talk about that. It, it, that's where the U-Men play, and they light the whole lake on fire? Probably. It's like oh, you would yeah. pay, like you would buy one ticket, and then you could get into anything for the whole day, and right. it was crazy. Yeah, the first time I went to Bumper Shoot was the same day I went to my very first punk rock show. <laughs> What? Who Spinal Tap. Oh, wow. It was their very last show. And it was like kind of the first time, it was, well, it was the first time I went to the sh- a show with the Melvins, you know, and, but that day was pretty weird. I remember like, we, we, we went to the show. I met uh, Ben Shepard, who was hanging out with those guys to go to, he was hanging, for whatever reason, he was hanging out with Buzz and Matt in Aberdeen. We went to, we went to that show together. And then at night we went over, I can't remember where it was. Um, God, I want to say it might've been like the Mercer art center, someplace like that. It was like three flights up. And I remember like the first punk rock show I saw besides seeing the Melvins before was, uh, um, the, it was the accused, the FUs and some other band. And I also remember meeting Mark arm that night. So it was kind of like that one day. Was weird, I you think know? I might have that flyer. I'll look for it. Yeah. There's a third band. I can't remember who it show. is. <laughs> That's wild that the FUs made it out to Seattle on tour. Yeah. Yeah. From from Boston. Yeah. The FUs are on a Tropicana flyer, and I've asked a bunch of people if they actually played, and everyone has said, not that I remember, and I don't remember it either. So <laughs> it I think must they have been, canceled that show. It probably would have been right around that time. For sure. Someone could have got arrested. Yeah. <laughs> or it could have got canceled. not have even that. confirmed the show. You know how you like know. people are on flyers and they don't even know that they were supposed to play back then? Yeah. You put oh. on the flyer? We didn't agree to play that show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then people are mad at you years later and you're like, what, what do you mean we didn't show up? Like, There's no way. We weren't even on tour then. How did we get on this Especially flyer? Especially if they bought this, the poster on eBay for like a lot of money. <laughs> There's like some Bellingham show. I'm like, we didn't even play that show. And everyone's right. like, you're just making the value of the poster go down. I'm like, sorry. <laughs> That's actually, in that movie, Hype is the first time I ever heard someone talk about a punk flyer being worth money. There's that scene <laughs> where the guy from CZ Records oh, is yeah. cutting up stuff. And right. he's like throwing out these numbers for what these flyers are worth. And that was the first time I ever thought about that. But now we're in an era where, yeah, flyers are like a legit currency now. Yeah, he, uh, he's, he's got to feel pretty bad about that now. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like with Misfits singles. When people, I know a friend of mine who sold her entire Misfits collection in the 90s. And she was like, well, there's no way they're going to be worth more than this ever. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh. Oops. Oops. But it also seems like in Seattle, the metal and the punk scene are like this double helix that sometimes converge and then sometimes seem really far apart. You know, like obviously what you're talking about with Metal Church, Dale, not being in Seattle, but I mean like sort of general area. But then uh, but then you hear about that famous sort of Guns N' Roses show where there's a, the metal show going on and there's like the Fastbacks, I think, playing another. Oh, no, Fastbacks are playing the Guns N' Roses. Anyway, there's like two shows going on in the same place. And it was like completely separate scenes going to the two different shows. Yeah, it was, um, um, I think it was Raw Power. Whoa. Um, 
Raw Power in one room. And Raw Power and then Fastbacks yeah. and Guns N' Roses, right? That's what it was. I think that's what it was, yeah. Those two shows don't even seem like they would be that different necessarily, like as yeah. far as the audience goes. Yeah, that's true. But it was always what well, that it was, you know, Gorilla Gardens and, and uh, um, Omni Room or whatever. So was, there was always like metal show in one room, punk show in the other. So, Kurt, and that was for whatever reason the metal show. <laughs> I did a I did a episode with Curtin Duff like this, but they were in character the whole time, so I couldn't ask them about that show. <laughs> <laughs> they have like a concept record that they did together, and oh, so the, okay. So they came on the show, but they would only do it in character the whole time. Oh, okay. <laughs> I said, I don't, yeah, I don't know if I was at that show or not. I mean, obviously, Dale, you were. <laughs> I was. <laughs> Did you watch Guns N' Roses? I remember like being in the, the projection room was the dressing room, and so you could see out either side. I remember watching it for a little bit, but I don't, I don't know. I don't remember much of it at all. But was that the case? Like, was there sort of like ebbs and flows and how close these two scenes were, Toby? Like the metal and the punk scene? Or did you always feel like metal was kind of a completely different bag? Um, I don't remember going to see any metal shows in the Gorilla Gardens. I just remember going to see the Melvins or like Danger Mouse who are from Olympia or, you know, like a touring band like Seven Seconds or Whisker mm-hmm. Do or something like that. Yeah. But like, but there's rock stuff. Like you're saying, screaming trees. Like that crosses over, and it seems like in other places that Sonic wouldn't necessarily jive with the raw power Sonic, or even even the Melvins kind of Sonic. Well, I mean, there was like Soundgarden playing, mm-hmm. and, and those were those weren't metal shows or Malfunction. <laughs> you know? I mean, yeah, I mean, Malfunction was kind of Spinal Tap ish, but really. Sort of. I- also, just like a really good band, though, like this, they had songs. I mean, you know, yeah, like yeah. they had songs that were catchy. Like it, it wasn't just, I don't know. Um, but they were like, I mean, they weren't like. Soundgarden seemed kind of new wave at first. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe so. But then also, but I could tell if they had a Zeppelin influence in them right away. Yeah, you know, just but like a weird, like I, I don't know. Did they have chorus on the guitar? I just remember them seeming a little bit new wave at first. Chorus, chorus. Yeah. Say, oh, totally. Like yeah. yeah. Um, like I think that they were into uh, like Killing Joke. Yeah, that makes sense. Killing Joke and Zeppelin. <laughs> It's interesting when Nate from um, like Foo Fighters, but back then, I guess Brotherhood and Diddley Squat was on. He was talking about how much he just hated that Led Zeppelin influence that permeated some bands and how there's a lot of legendary bands that he was just like, I just completely dismissed it as being influenced by Led Zeppelin. Like, it seems like there was maybe a generational break or maybe it's just that particular scene that sort of was reacting to the stuff that was getting popular around the time that their stuff was also, I guess, getting going. Yeah, maybe, or maybe it was just like uh, uh, rebelling against like big '70s rock or whatever, you know. Yeah, I like. I actually hated anything after Led Zeppelin for, for whatever reason. <laughs> I liked the first four records, and I thought everything else was just like annoying, KZOK classic rock kind of shit. And everything else I thought was just like perfect sounding music. But I do remember like when I first heard it, I didn't like it at all. Like it took, I had to get into kind of like heavier stuff and probably start drumming too. What about Kiss? Were you a fan of Kiss at all? Yeah, I loved Kiss, but I, I think we maybe talked about this before. Like I just, I was such a little kid. I thought that they were like a cartoon. Like I didn't know that they weren't, I thought they were like Josie and the Pussycats or something. Yeah. You know, yeah, like I didn't really understand, enough. like, cause you'd look at the cover 
I mean, I was really little and I didn't have older brothers and sisters. And it was just like, like my babysitter had the records, you know, mm-hmm. they didn't look like humans. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It was kind of like Croft. It's like Sid and Marty Croft. Oh yeah, totally. It was totally. like Saturday morning cartoons. But yeah, I thought they were really scary and really good. A Sid and Marty Croft kiss special should have happened. <laughs> that would have been amazing. Fact, I'm there surprised. Are, they, they did the um, the Pollen Halloween special, and then they also did, there's the Hanna-Barbera cartoon, like Kiss Meets the Phantom. It's not a cartoon, but it's exactly like an episode of Scooby-Doo. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there's yeah, also the Kiss really Meets the bad. Phantom in, the, in that movie, right? That's, like it's like, Yeah, that's what she's talking yeah, about, yeah. I think. The live action. Because they were... I was recently watching like a newer Scooby Doo thing with my kids, and they had Kiss on it. Which, oh right, right. Oh okay. Like, yeah, it would be like having like you know someone from the jazz era on on Scooby Doo when I was a kid, but it's yeah. very interesting <laughs> here. Well, I would have preferred Kiss had their own Saturday morning uh, uh, variety show, but instead it was the Bay City Rollers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, but I remember like you know be, watching that just because it was guys playing music and even watching how to like, Oh, you, you play the drums like this. Okay. So that, you know, watching that early on. I was reading an interview with Malcolm McLaren recently, and he was talking about how in this interview, or maybe it was, yeah, it was, it was McLaren, but talking about how he kind of like envisioned the sex pistols to being the Rolling Stones to the Bay city rollers Beatles. And it's just, I can't imagine those two bands operating in the same space at all. Yeah, that's funny. I think I read that interview too. Um, I mean, they were just they were on they were on Saturday morning TV though. They were for kids, you know. They're and they huge. Just, they were like they were wearing those crazy outfits. <laughs> they looked really yeah. really funny. <laughs> they were like, they were like glam light. I mean, that's like I was a little kid, so I was into like Sean Cassidy and stuff back then. Sure, you know, sure. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like just like really cheesy pop music. But I think I remember the Bay City Rollers being kind of good. Like, but I think they're I like them better than the Osmonds. Oh, I was related to the Osmonds. I remember as a kid. Well, they have that one good song, Crazy Horses. <laughs> Crazy yeah. Horses. Yeah, yeah. That yeah I mean, really good. I I was into them too, but like I think. I, my favorite band of all those was the Jackson Five. So, um, like I saw, I, remember, I thought they were all kind of like the same type of band, though. I remember in like first grade having an Osmond's lunchbox, and and these uh, girls in sixth grade making fun of me for it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> have you have you heard Crazy Horses? Have you heard this song? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, I, that's the one song I still think is good. I can't remember any of the other songs off the top of my head. There's a couple of good ones on that record. Uh, that's when they were into their Zeppelin phase. There's some there's some good songs, but mostly they do sound like the Jackson 5. Um, Jackson 5 yeah. are really good, though. <laughs> so are the Osmonds. <laughs> okay. Crazy Horses, for sure. Yeah, Red Cross covered that song. So that was really cool. Right. Oh, when, yeah. when Jeff and Steve were just on the or Steve were just on the show, Jeff was saying he was, saw the Osmonds on TV one day and looked over at his little brother and said, this is the ticket family act <laughs> yeah right <laughs> and he oh, knew hilarious <laughs> he knew hilarious i met donnie because donnie was doing joseph and the Mex- amazing tech colored dream coats here in toronto for a long time and i used to fill the vending machine in the yeah. backstage area and he was super nice and would just like always kind of hang around and and you know like talk to people and stuff backstage and i talked and i was like yo that one song you guys got that song's heavy 
And it was like no one had ever told him that. He was very like, really? really? Yeah, he was like, oh, wow. Thank you. Or at least at least he faked it really well. If people were com- coming up to him all the time about that song. It's a good song. Yeah. He had that show with Don- with Marie, and they had Snoop Dogg on it one time. Really? Oh, the the the, uh, the 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 doc show, not the not the variety show, right? No, the talk show. Yeah, like a little later on, Snoop Dogg would have been really young, I think, if he was on the yeah. variety show. Toby, like, what were there other places that you thought you you were talking about moving, or is it always going to be DC because of the kind of connection with the Discord stuff? Oh, actually, I wanted to move to San Francisco my whole life, and I tried to move there in like 1990. I couldn't find a job, um, so I came back to Olympia. But yeah, I think I was like, I wanted Bikini Kill to move to San Francisco, but then I Why didn't you hit me up? I could have got you a job at the pizza place. I don't know. I could have got you a job. I was just like going, I was just like going around like to every place that was near Donna's apartment, like asking if they were hiring. I think I had experience doing coffee and nobody would hire me. But um, yeah, I tried for like a month. But uh, we... We like, I think like Kathleen and Kathy were going to move away. And then Kathleen said she was going to move to Chicago. And then I was like, well, how about San Francisco? And she's like, yeah, I would do San Francisco. And then Kathy Wilcox like hates California for some reason. I don't understand. And so she's like, I will not move to San Francisco. So she just crossed it off the list. And I was like, I'm not going to move to Chicago. It's too fucking cold. Yeah. And so then like DC was like the next one because we were already on tour with Nation of Ulysses. And Kathleen is actually from DC and or from Laurel, Maryland. Or she went to, um, I guess she's born in Portland, but she like went to middle school in Laurel, Maryland. And then Kathy's aunt lived there. It just, you know, we had like a lot of stuff like that. Friends right. there. Wait, where's Kathy from? Um, she's from Vancouver, Washington, okay. but Vancouver, like her Washington. aunt is, her aunt lives in lived in DC or something like that. Like you said, you wanted to do it professionally as a touring band. Was it like Fugazi was kind of the model back then? Because like, you know, uh, you know, the Melvins by this point, you guys were trying to do get. On, well, I guess you were on the major label by this point. Um, but it feels like at this moment there isn't really a lane for kind of like, like what would be the the like idealized version of a band you could be like at that point for you guys um well i mean i think it's like we lived really cheaply so it was like well we could you know if we could just play this many shows we could just live off of it like you know a certain amount of money like we're just like writing down like how much money would we need you know in order to make it work or you could just like figure like in your mind like if we're just on tour all the time (laughs) then we won't have to even pay rent because we won't live anywhere you know just like that kind of young person idea it wasn't like oh yeah because i didn't even have like the idea of like putting out a record or being able to like make money off of selling records like that idea didn't really come into my mind like that idea came later it was more just like oh we'll just be on tour and then we'll just that that's will be what we do but it, it just didn't seem like having a job would make any sense because then you would have to just always take off work and then you'd lose your job and then you'd come back and you'd have to find another job. Like if you want to do a band, you just have to like put it first, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I and guess you, I'm sorry, go on. I'm trying to think of like what I was thinking. <laughs> it wasn't very practical. It was just like, this is what we're doing. This is the number one most important thing in all of our lives or whatever. We're I trying think- to make it that way. 
for fucked up it's always been trying to be like the melvins but but that's because we're like a post melvins band and post obviously the major label stuff but just this idea of like you can be a band and make a living like you're not going to you you know be necessarily the richest person but you can make a living off your art if you just handle your business in a certain way and like yeah like you're saying a lot of it revolves around putting out records and having records to sell and having like that sort of physical product yeah we weren't even thinking of that we were just thinking of tour playing shows mm-hmm. you know like in the idea is just like oh like if a co- if you play a college you can make like five hundred dollars or a thousand dollars or something there's like so many colleges on the east coast you know so it's like how many how much would it cost for us all to make our rent like we'd have to play a couple college shows a month Was and there... we never had food or anything you know yeah we're always hungry <laughs> well there's that part i think in dance of days where they talk about you know yourselves and fugazi sitting around eating just like beans and rice in like a house that's freezing it was worse than that it was like uh i don't know what, what it says in dance of days but it was <laughs> just remember this one time like uh fugazi's sound guy joey p he had the he's from philadelphia he's got like a, a really fun like a really classic philly accent i can't do it if but you can imagine it he, his other side job besides being sound guy was selling pretzels at like you know in stadium shows and stuff so like everyone at the grief houses in dc all of our freezers were always full of joey p's pretzels that he was going to go sell <laughs> so we would like wait till everyone went to sleep and go downstairs and like steal these pretzels you know like like that's how hungry we were it was just like living off of like and somebody worked in a bakery so like there was free bread at one of the houses for toast or whatever. So you'd be like, oh, okay, like the the responsible person goes to bed at like 10. So we can go over to that person's house and then like steal their toast. You know, like, just like it was really desperate. What was it like, Dale, when that kind of world opens up? Like here you are trying to figure out how to make this band work in terms of like, you know, you're like you're working at the pizza place, but then all of a sudden the world's attention turns to what you're doing. Like, you know, labels are coming to you now. Yeah, I mean, well, even before that happened, we were able to tour and make enough money where we could quit our jobs. Mm. Um, it happened really quick because, I mean, you know, we did a tour. We did that, the first tour that we did was in 86, summer of 86. And, I mean, it was just so bad for us that we decided that we would never do it again, <laughs> you know. Um and then things changed, you know, I and mean, then it was because of uh, what was happening in Seattle, for sure. But yeah, I remember like in 89, I think we went, was the next time we actually did a tour where we didn't book it ourselves. We actually had somebody book it for us. <laughs> and we did okay. We came home with money. We came home with money and I actually had enough money to buy a guitar. So I bought my first electric guitar. That's when you know it's going to work. I didn't, I didn't spend it on food or anything else. <laughs> Just yeah, guitar. Um, uh, we had like a funny thing where we were just like we did tour with the booking agent and that those shows made no money and no one came and then I was like I can do a better job than this and my tours actually made more money oh, wow. like in the early days yeah we had the opposite thing happen it's funny well that's well, better than you don't have to pay somebody a percentage too yeah so I mean kind of before before the whole major label thing like we were already able to do it you know, things were pretty good for us. I mean, we were on, we hooked up with Boner mm-hmm. and that was a really good label to be on because Tom is honest and still pays us and those records are still on Boner. Um, so I, yeah, I don't know. Things, things turned out pretty good. 
pretty quickly. Yeah. And you guys always seem to have like a good sense for business, like in terms of like finding the right people to hook up with. Like, I'm sure there's been mistakes along the way, but you know, the people that you wind up doing stuff with are labels that are, are around for a long period of time. Even like the slap ham flexi, like slap ham sure. winds up becoming a significant label. Sure. We really wanted to be on SST. <laughs> well, yeah, glad I it worked out that like, way. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, things worked out better, I think. But um, yeah, I, you know, we did. We were fortunate to where we got to hook up with some pretty good people, and we're pretty loyal when we find somebody that we like. Like we've had the same book agent for a long time now. We've been working with um, with uh, um, Epicac for a long time. It's good when so, you find good people. Yeah, and it's and it feels like it, 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 if you can keep these people around, they're going to be around for life in this world. Yeah. Like you know the the lifers. Yeah, even our crew guys. You know, we really like them a lot. You know, and, and I don't know. We you know we'd really once we find somebody we like. Like I said, we're we're pretty loyal. <laughs> you know, like we don't have people working for us that are like rock and roll roadie type guys. You know, they're they're quite the opposite. They're all real sweet. You guys must have done tours at that time, though, with with rock bands that did have that kind of vibe. Oh yeah, <laughs> and it, of course. It feels so different, you know, when you're on a like I haven't done very many of those types of tours, but when you're on a tour like that, you're like, oh, this is a completely different thing than the punk thing. Sure, but I mean, it just depends. You know, I mean, we've toured with bands that are big bands that have been complete jerks, and then like. Well, last year we just did a tour with Ministry, and that, they were great. Their whole crew were super nice. All the guys in the band were super nice. There was no like rock star attitude thing at all, and it made it it made it great. It made it. That was our first tour back from from uh, you know being stuck at home for the pandemic for the last couple of years or whatever. So that was a really great tour to do. That was been a wild tour too. It was fun, really fun. <laughs> Had you already moved, Toby, by the time every all the madness started in sort of Seattle in terms of the signing of bands? Yeah, we like moved away like um in like uh ninety one, like we played with Nirvana and Mudhoney at the Paramount and then we moved away like two days later. Well we just went on tour oh, wow. and, and we stayed in DC. So we didn't come back until like almost like about ninety three or something that's when some of us came back and uh yeah everything had completely changed and um we didn't i don't know what was wrong with us but like it took us so long to figure out what label to be on or what to put out that we'd recorded and you know even when we first put something out we didn't do a cd right away and i was like looking through my journals and i was like god it's like 1994 when we were finally realized that if we just put out cds will actually be making money and because it was just like oh they owe us eight thousand dollars and i was like oh god like i was just thinking like how naive we were or kind of like anti i don't know if it was like anti-materialistic or just like not motivated by money but it's like dude like all we had to do was put out cds like why weren't we doing that right away like we it, it could have been so much easier you know i think a, a cd was looked Here. up well cds were looked upon as being careerist like bands that did cds wanted to do this for a living and it seemed like that was antithetical to the diy code i don't know i think like we were so living outside of that world that we didn't know anyone that had cd players like mm -hmm. it took slim who had a label to be like 
like, no, everyone's listening to CDs. I'm like, well, my dad has one, but like, you know, would anyone who likes our music? I, and Slim had to like really explain it to me. Slim's the owner of Kill Rockstars. And he's like, the Cramps put out a CD in like 1988 or something like that. And I was like, okay. Like I had to kind of just re, yeah, I was against them or I don't know. Like, it's just really funny. Like, why do you have to make it that hard for yourself? You know? <laughs> yeah. That's all. That's what punk and hardcore is throwing rules on yourself that you don't, I don't necessarily know. Need. It just seemed like some kind of like weird stumbling block. It's like, I really don't know what I was thinking. It's a really, that was a stupid thing. <laughs> it's way more affordable for someone to buy a CD than to buy a vinyl setup to listen to this music. Well, so no, totally. Now people are totally. getting nostalgic about CDs too, though, like they were about vinyl. Like we know vinyl's back, but people are getting like kids are getting nostalgic about CDs like they were about tapes, you know, cassette. Mm -hmm. Yep. No, there definitely is a, a CD collector market. And I think if there's probably one thing that might be worse to hang around with than a record collector, it's probably a CD collector. I mean, they get scratched so easily. I'm really bad. I'm really hard on them and all the jewel cases just break and crumble. <laughs> I, I have CDs that have decomposed. Like that just in the case, just, you know, the, all the information started flaking off them. Like they just, oh, feel, it feels, wow. feels like being a cassette collector. Like I always, but I, it, I, is, it is really good for musicians though. Cause there's such a high profit margin. Yeah. And if people start buying them again. Right. And they're so cheap to make now. Yeah. So they're really cheap. I don't, I mean, even now I'm surprised that more bands don't just make CDs. Cause I mean, well, for one to make a record right now, I mean, there's, there's, it's so backed up to get your vinyl press that it, you know, good luck. Um, and just the expense, you know, mm. I mean, if you, you can make CDs are so cheap, especially right now. It'd I mean, really we, easy to do, do it yourself. Make them. We, Bikini Call makes them, but I don't know if anyone's yeah. buying them. I'll have to look. It's the rarest format Maybe. for our records now. Like there's, we do two yeah. 500 CDs or something. Yeah. You know, like just, but because I don't know if people buy them at the shows. Like, I don't really see people buying them off our merch table. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Some, I mean, we have some that are really cheap, mm. you know, and then there's some that are like special packaging deals. But the, but mostly, I think even stuff we sell at shows are like definitely no more than $10 for a CD, you know, more like five bucks. It, it makes you just like furious at how much we were paying for cds in like the 90s well, I like 30 dollars for a black flag cd come on oh really uh, i remember when they first came out it was like i would go to like the the best record store in san francisco at the time was tower because you can go get cds for 10 bucks yeah. well in canada sst was an import so oh, every, yeah, okay. everything was an yeah. import up here right so right so that stuff was always at a premium i bought process of weeding out for 30 dollars and it ruined black flag for a good two years for me it took me two more years before i could finally you know get over the fact that i felt like i had been ripped off by paying 30 dollars for this instrumental record i like that record yeah. i like it now i like it now but at the time right. i was not ready for it you know i wasn't, <laughs> wasn't ready for it for. when it came out either i like it now though uh, and i think now that i started smoking weed i love it like whew, now it makes sense yeah i could make That's it it's because Greg Ginn's a deadhead. That's why. Yes, exactly. Did you hear Steve's story about going to the show and talking to Greg afterwards and not thinking that Greg recognized him? That's what he told me. He's like, yeah, I don't think he knew who I was. 
<laughs> yeah, uh, funny. That's my goal to smoke that much weed that I forget huge chunks of my life. That's that's really where I want to be one day. And I've, <laughs> I'm not even joking. That's that's actually my goal. So uh, this has been phenomenal to get to do this with you both. And anytime you both want to come back in any configuration or together, please know you're always welcome because I know I just oh, I can't. Well, I can't think of, as I started off, I can't think of two more influential drummers in, in punk rock. Like there's obviously other influential drummers, but like just very different styles and just very informative and inspirational to kids, you know, like Melvin's a bikini. Oh, killer. thanks. You're like, how many bands were, have you inspired? Like I watched a video, Toby. Two. And it, <laughs> two right here. Um, but I watched a video the other day of Bikini Kill in Australia and you're at the show and the singer of the distillers old bands playing like it's wild the ripples that kind of <laughs> came out of the stones you threw into the yeah. world everyone like writes those comments on that video too of like uh that we're like you know not being polite or something <laughs> while they're playing but like <laughs> what i remember is like it like we had to play a show that day and they're like oh we're gonna take you girls to the rock and roll high school or something like that in australia and then there's going to be a concert for you but i just remember being like we hadn't really had coffee yet and then we walk into this room that's like all kids and there's really bright lights and they just are performing for us <laughs> that's the nightmare so that is wow. the nightmare of being on tour and then you notice that they're filming you too, like oh, filming no. your reaction. <laughs> so I'm just sitting there going like, I'm like wearing sunglasses or something. And I'm like, oh my God, this is so awkward. Yeah. Wow. But, you know, I did meet Brody on that tour and, and um, you know, she's very talented. Even then she was, you know, she kind of sounded like Courtney Love at that time. Her band was a very whole influence, but I um, you know, she was nice. I think she was like 16 or something. Yeah, it's just wild, like, you know, the people that are in these shows, these tiny spaces that wind up doing music because of the direct influence of you two. Well, I mean, Dale is a big influence on me, like, even though I don't play, like, Dale-style drums, like, I do remember the one thing, like, when I first started playing, I was like, well, you got to hit the drums really hard. <laughs> and I would just, like, hit the drums really hard, no matter what style of music it was, so much that the drums would just fall over because they were just, you know, not tightened properly or something. And so, yeah, Dale, you definitely inspired me to oh, thanks. practice all the time and hit the drums hard, you know? So that that's definitely a part of, of that influence. You keep doing it. Maybe maybe we'll get star. We'll get our own Hollywood star. <laughs> no, actually, I saw. Uh, um, so I live now in the Coachella Valley, which is basically near Palm Springs. And uh, you know Hal Blaine, right? Yeah. You guys know yeah, who yeah, Hal Blaine yeah. is, right? Everybody knows who Hal Blaine is. Yeah, they should. The, um, what is that? You've heard him. Wrecking Crew, right? Yeah. The Wrecking Crew, right? The Monkees, the Beach Boys, Elvis. Anyway, he got his um his own star uh, dedicated to him um, in Palm Springs. And I was at the dedication the other day oh, wow. and uh, uh, Clem Brick was there. Oh, wow. And, um, and I know Clem a little bit and I was talking to him and it, what I didn't realize is like, Oh yeah, we're going to have a little jam down the street where we play some, some wrecking crew songs. Oh, wow. Like, Oh, cool. And I went and watched him play and um, I was just at this little restaurant or whatever. And, um, I see Clem kind of walks by me and says hello to this woman who's sitting right behind me. And I look and I'm like, 
That's fucking Nancy Sinatra. <laughs> Nancy Sinatra was sitting right behind me. I'm like, oh my God, I couldn't believe it. And then I'm thinking, these guys are going to play. She's going to sing. Wow. Come on, come on. She's got to sing. And and so like, um, um, you know, sure enough, they, they do boots and I don't think she was planning on it, but then, um, one of the guys who was involved in, in Hal Blank getting his, his star, um, was his nephew and he came over with a microphone and handed it to her. And, uh, um, and so she was like basically like seeing boots right in front of me. It was awesome. <laughs> That's amazing. So, that was pretty incredible. I'm like, all right, I hung out in Palm Springs with a Sinatra. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I, driving by their house was one of the highlights of when I went out to Coachella Valley, the old Frank Sinatra house. So. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I went there not that long ago to to try to take a look at it, and it was kind of, it was opened, and uh, me and some other friends kind of snuck up there to look in, and and uh, um, we were shooting away, but they were polite about it. <laughs> <laughs> like both of you are first stars on the turn out of punk hall walk of fame as soon as i <laughs> yeah that maybe i'll put in the basement put stars little stars in here but both of you are our first ballot entries in that thing for sure excellent cool thanks for having us yeah